Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So Joe, this is the third episode of our uh, LIBOR series. You know, I said it in the beginning and I wasn't being facetious. This is one of those things that I felt was extremely important to understand and that I didn't have much knowledge on. And so I'm uh, very happy that we're finally working through all this. You know, our first episode, we sort of talked about the problems with LIBOR pre-financial crisis and post-financial crisis. And then in the second episode, we talked a lot about the transition away from LIBOR and how that's going. In this episode, we are going to talk to someone who's actually actively trying to come up with an alternative reference rate. It is interesting because uh, I know that there is a very big push afoot to move, uh, you know, as we've talked about, from LIBOR over to SOFR, and there are all kinds of efforts going on towards that that front. But I guess that is not the only theoretical uh, alternative approach. Yeah, exactly. So even though there's this regulatory push towards the secured overnight financing rate or SOFR, uh, there are well, there is the potential for alternative rates to enter the market, and we have the perfect person to talk about this. We're going to be speaking with Richard Sandor. He's the chairman and CEO of the American Financial Exchange, also someone who occasionally is referred to as the father of financial futures, has a lot of experience in the derivatives market, and has, uh, well, invented quite a few contracts um, over the years. So again, the perfect person. I'm really looking forward to this. Okay, let's bring him on. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, thank you for the invitation, and I'm happy to be here with both of you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So I, I gave a little bit of an intro just then, um, but it's kind of hard to summarize your career because it's quite expansive. And you've done quite a few things. Can can you try to summarize it in in a in a nutshell for our viewers, viewers for our listeners? I should say it's really hard to talk about yourself. I leave that to others generally. But let's say I'm a serial in, inventor and a financial innovator. I get it wrong a bunch of times and then uh, get it right too. So I've spent forty five years trying to observe capital markets and see what instruments can be developed to minimize transaction costs and achieve social objectives. And LIBOR and its successors fit into that. And like most inventive activity, there's a spark. And we had sold our last exchange, which was a series of market-based solutions to global warming, to ICE in 2010. Um, it was very successful. Our investors made seven and a half to 15 times their money between 03 and 10. A sale price was 600 million. And we had developed exchanges in North America the UK and China. And we reformed the incubator, uh, which is something called EFP, because we were looking for new markets. And we started to look at water. Um, we had a contract with the state of New Mexico, California, looking at China, because we thought 
that water would be, and still do think, the commodity of the 21st century. I picked up a newspaper in 2011 uh, and read that the Royal Bank of Scotland fired four people for manipulating LIBOR. I called the team in, and even I know it takes two to manipulate. So if there was one, then there was going to be a second. And if we binomially expanded, two would go to four, four would go to eight, et cetera. And that ultimately we thought that there would be a demise in LIBOR. It would end and that we would set off on a 10-year odyssey to develop a replacement to LIBOR. Uh, LIBOR was unusual and in that it was the only asset class that I knew about that had a single benchmark, all because of a loan in the 60s to the Shah of Iran. If you take a look at crude oil, it's got WTI, it's got Brent, it's got Dubai, it's now got a Shanghai. If we look at the equity markets, they have uh, NASDAQ, S&P, Dow, Russell, Valuline, uh, more stock indexes than there are stocks. And the same with fixed income. So what is this anomaly called LIBOR and how could we have hundreds of trillions of dollars tied to a poll. That would be like electing the, the president of the United States based on the Wall Street Journal poll. It made no sense whatsoever that it was the only benchmark and it wasn't even market determined. So we set out and said, let's develop something that is everything that LIBOR isn't. Let's make it transparent. Let's make it regulated. Let's make it based on transactions only. And let's make it American. London has LIBOR, Europe has Eurobor, even Hong Kong has uh, HIBOR. How could it be that the world's largest economy didn't have its own benchmark? So um, <laughs> I got on a plane, uh, and instead of going to London, Paris, Shanghai, Hong Kong, uh, and uh, Vienna, etc., I ended up in Bentonville, Arkansas, Tupelo, Mississippi, San Antonio, Texas, uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and visited 125 small banks with my colleagues. So if it was going to be a benchmark, it would be one that was based on American banks, overnight, unsecured lending to each other. We were naturally viewed with some skepticism. Interest rates were zero. People said LIBOR is never going to go away. You don't understand, uh, Dr. Sandor. This is the bedrock of all finance. And you're climbing up a mountain and you need to go back to Chicago because not, that's not the way it works. We felt 
quite opposite. And actually, as a contrarian and as an inventor, that was really bullish because it, everybody thought it, there was no need for it. And oftentimes, in my experience, whether it's financial futures, the derivatives, everybody said no need for it, whether it was acid rain and the market, no need for it, catastrophe bonds, no need for it, climate change, no, not happening, no need for it. So whatever small success I've had, it's been where the lights and beacon of the industry has told me that there's no need for it. So talk to us uh, about your approach. So you mentioned the sort of absurdity that the world operated on a single benchmark, even though most things, whether it's stocks or oil, multiple benchmarks uh, all around the world. What is it about uh, the way that um, your uh, index would be constructed that's A, better for uh, use, why regionalization is good, but also less prone to some of the manipulation issues that of course uh, accelerated or caused LIBOR's demise? Great question. So we, uh, again, we thought that we would stay away from SIFI, um, the systemically important financial institutions. And uh. we would go to recruit the 5,000 banks um, that, were non-SIFIs and not go after the 15 SIFIs. So our market was going to be 5,000 banks that have approximately $9 trillion in assets, about half of that in floating rate, and that would be regionals, mid-sized community banks. And if we had breadth as well as depth, that the competitive markets like wheat and soybeans and gold, et cetera, that were regulated and were transaction-based manipulation could not occur. And if it did occur, if it was regulated, we had policing and enforcement power. So we hooked up with SIBO. We said, here's our algorithm, here's our benchmarks. You have a big compliance department. You're an SRO. You own a securities exchange. You own a commodities exchange. Why don't you uh, be our compliance folks and take a look at every single transaction, have the complete tape, have a complete compliance thing, and we will make sure that, that we are not manipulable and we will have anti-spoofing rules concentrations will be limited. We will be able to speak to anybody. We have a business conduct committee. We have a 125 page rule book of do's and don'ts. We have the ability to bring up a bank that misbehaves before a business conduct committee. We know how to do this. So we set in place all of the things that traditionally regulated and transparent markets perform. So we started with four banks. We traded 13 million a day. We're up to 143 banks, another 1,200 correspondents. 
So we have about 30% of America's banks. We trade $2.5 billion a day after four years. And we have 80 participants in any given quarter or month. So we are deep and we are broad. We also brought in IOSCO because we thought it was important that we get independently audited with regard to liquidity, concentration, et cetera. So an independent audit was occurred by a major accounting firm that said we were IOSCO compliant. When we hit a billion dollars a day, we went and got a CFTC approval. They have to make sure the index is viable before they allow you to trade the futures. And we have broadened the market from not only 143 banks, they include all of the big regionals, regions, Northern Trust, uh, Fifth Third, et cetera, 50% of the banks just under between five and 60 billion and 1,200 community banks. We also have Jefferies, the broker dealers, insurance companies like Northwestern, money managers, uh, Guggenheim just joined, and now we have companies like John Deere. We feel that a transparent, regulated market that has 80 participants, that does billions a day, is an adequate benchmark, and uh, you can see the tape. Every trade is transparent, it can be monitored, it can be audited. And so we feel we've just taken an age-old tradition that exists in Chicago, provide many buyers and sellers of a broad commodity financial instrument and the rest will take care of itself. Uh, Richard, I wanted to go back to, um, I, I guess, this, the notion that you had that you, you didn't have to have a reference rate, uh, a sort of one size fits all reference rate. You could have shades of it. I, I have maybe a stupid question, but some people would perhaps argue that one of the good things about having a benchmark, a single benchmark, is the simplicity. How would you respond to that idea? That's great. Simplicity is fine. If you're willing to roll the entire world economy on simpleness, then you get what you would <laughs> to get a total breakdown. You get simplicity, <laughs> but you just get a financial crisis. Why would you want, look, well, I'm a professional economist. I teach at the University of Chicago. I've been doing it for 45 years. I, economists don't know anything, okay? We can't forecast. We haven't foreseen two major crises, meltdowns, things of this thing. There's only one thing you could probably get every economist. So if you go to China, you go to London, Oxford, you go to the University of Chicago, one and only one thing will everybody agree on, and that is diversification. Right. That's you probably will get nobody will argue against diversification. Right. Right. It's the one thing we know. We don't know whether the market's going to go up or down, whether it's going to crash, fall apart. We don't know anything in finance and economics other than choice and diversification is good. So obviously, um, you know, as you say, diversification of 
things are good. The dependence on a single LIBOR proved to be problematic. Uh, as we set up in the intro, regulators are pushing for this LIBOR replacement SOFR, which we've discussed based on uh, overnight secured financing. Uh, you take a different approach. Can your vision, your index thrive in a world in which regulators are pushing for everything out or pushing for another sort of universal LIBOR replacement? And can we have this sort of diversification even if uh, regulators sort of have the specific vision? We, I don't think regulators are as singular in their attitudes and thought processes as the popular press would indicate or the financial press. We have spoken to them and uh, that is, and we've briefed because this is how we operate. We, for the last five years, we go down to Washington, we brief the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, the SEC, the CFTC. And when I say to them what I am sharing with you, that there should be a free market for ideas and competition for ideas, not one, not a singular one said that's a bad idea. Okay, they have not said they are officially neutral. Uh, we already have our premise from 2011 being validated. We got Sofer, we got Sonia, we got Tona, we got Esther. We're already breaking down the idea that a simple idea. Now, why would you have only a risk free rate? Uh, you need a risk rate because, in fact, what we've learned in the last two crises, there's a flight to quality and interest rates between government guaranteed paper and private uh, borrowing, non-public, diverge on crises and secularly when there's a recession. So you need a credit component in an index. We are the only index that has a credit component. 5,000 American banks want to develop assets which reflect their borrowing costs so they can match the two in an asset liability management process. So if you want to make the banking system stable, you should develop floating rate assets that reflect the floating rate costs. And for 5,000 American banks, the risk-free rate is fabulous. We believe in SOFR. We think it's a great thing. It's terrific for the money center banks. It doesn't fit. And the 5,000 small banks, getting back to my opening comment about social purpose, we had Jeremy Stein, who is the chair of the Harvard Economics Department. We funded a lecture at Northwestern two years ago. And it's unambiguous that, that these mid-sized regional and small banks disproportionately create jobs in America. This is a critical time in our economy, in the world. Why would one be against the institutions that function and provide financing to America's 
businesses, small businesses, which disproportionately create jobs. I don't get that opposition. It's like being in a Magritte painting. It's surreal. Richard, you're talking about the importance of having a credit component in uh, this benchmark reference rate. I wanted to ask you, I, I think the the loans that you're looking at include not just loans between banks, but also um, between broker dealers and private equity as well. Um, I think that's right. Could you maybe uh, talk a little bit about why you thought it was important to include those entities as well? Yeah, I, I think the job is not only to create liquidity in the banking system, but it is to bridge the market between the banking system and the capital markets. And if you have Cerberus or Jefferies or John Deere or Northwestern Mutual that also are sources of liquidity, then you bring to bear the power of more and more players and greater breadth to the market. So that's why we, and all of those folks either have floating rate assets, they have asset liability management, they have capital market debt. So there's a natural nexus and why LIBOR was confined only to banks, again, is a historical accident. And if you wanted to design, it was like saying, okay, I'm going to design a car and it's going to be a two-wheeler like a bicycle because everything before has two wheels. And therefore, I don't care if it's a car and needs four wheels, it's like a bicycle, so let's make it a two-wheeler. If you broke down almost anything you do, and if you look at inventive activity, you tailor it to what the market needs and wants. And again, we're struck by, well, that's the way, you know, my grandfather used to do it, so I'm gonna do it the same way. Richard, here's what I'm trying to still wrap my head around, because what you're saying makes a lot of sense, that it doesn't necessarily benefit the country as a whole to have a, a lending index that's heavily skewed towards uh, built around the big banks, that smaller companies, real economy companies like Deer, local banks, key for job creation. All that being said, how does it, in practice, how does the use of Amiribor, your index, improve actual business functioning versus uh, some of these other benchmarks when it comes to the actual uh, writing of loans and other deals that need some index to be built up? Uh, two ways. I remember that, that banks lend not based on a risk-free rate, right? So if, if you if they are forced to create assets that are, are risk-free, then there will be volatility in their asset and liability. It will create uncertainty. It will reduce profitability. And therefore, it will cause interest rates and profitability of banks to be lower to account for the risks they take and interest rates to be higher for borrowers to reflect the increase 
volatility associated with running the business. It's just like a competition narrows the spread between wholesale and retail prices. And it's true for supermarkets, car dealers, and it's true for interest rates. The more you get and the more the commodity becomes homogeneous, the greater the benefits to the institutions through higher probability and to the consumers through lower costs. It's no different than any other commodity. Uh, Richard, you spoke a little bit about adoption of Ameribor. I, I guess I'm curious, what's the what's the next step for the reference rate? To Joy's to Joe's point, when does like what what would it take for adoption to really sort of take off, or what are you aiming for? Ah, uh, great question. You guys are super. You put a smile on my face. So, so in 2011, when we did this. My experience, whether it was bond futures or asset rate or anything, it takes a decade to develop a market. So in 2011, we said this is going to take 10 to 15 years. Zero to two is toddler. Two to five is kind of teenager and young adult. And five to 15 is adulthood. We're eight years into the process. Uh, we got lucky when we said 10 years that the, and it was no judgment. It was a stroke of luck that we called for a 10 year horizon just when LIBOR ended, uh, 2021. So we now have, and it, this is true, whether it's the personal computer, you know, or, or the iPhone, these things take a generation to go. So we are now getting banks that are starting to price the uh, loans that they make based on Ameribor, 50 million, 20 million, 100 million. They show on their graphs that they have a high correlation to the old LIBOR. So it's very easy to, to educate customers. Equally, as we have adoption of floating rate, they're using a 30-day average because they can go on to Bloomberg, they can go on to, you know, any vendor or Meriport.net, see the price, so there's perfect transparency, and they're using a 30-day average. On June 8th, we will launch a monthly futures contract on the 30-day average Ameribor to reflect what banks are pricing loans to auto dealers in Memphis and small milk farmers in Wisconsin, a million, you know, $100 million manufacturing companies in Arkansas. That's how the loans are going to get priced. And then once that happens, we will, uh, and we are educating swap dealers now who already deal with these banks to swap floating to fixed. Um, and the swap dealers will be matched with a bank who's issued a floating rate loan to a corporate. They will develop a swap. 
the swap will be hedged in the futures, and that is the final link in the maturity of the market. So as we see banks adopt Ameribor as a benchmark, give it to corporates and small businesses on loans, then the banks go to either a money center bank or a large bank to do a swap, and then that feeds the future. And then it's just a matter of replication. And we figure that's probably two to two, five years. We will see the, the ultimate broader adoption of Ameribor as a, a benchmark. Um, and, and again, we see a world in which Sonia, Sofer, Maribor, you know, there'll be a rate in Europe. We've already educated some central bankers there. Uh, and there'll be a rate in China that, that the whole benchmark will be disrupted and we'll see a whole family of different rates. All right, Richard. Well, we'll have to have you uh, back on in, in a few years to, to talk about what's going on with Ameribor um, in the U.S. and also potentially some reference rates uh, outside of the U.S. as well. Thank you so much for coming on Offbox. This is my pleasure. Thank you. Your questions were intelligent, well thought out. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. That was great. His point about how there's no reason why you have to have a single benchmark and it's kind of weird that for something as important as this sort of lending or interbank benchmark that you only have a single one. I think that's really interesting. I did too. I also think it's interesting this idea of wanting a credit component in the benchmark itself mm. because of course uh, with SOFR it's like the idea is there really shouldn't be much of a credit component. It's secured and so on. But then, of course, if you're going to build a loan on top of SOFA, then you have to like calculate a uh, credit spread or some sort of uh, market. Uh, the market will determine a spread on top of that. So it'll be interesting to see if it makes more sense, and to his point, sort of uh, local, regional, company capital efficiency, if it makes more sense to have a benchmark that includes the sort of the credit conditions of the American economy overall. Yeah, and that risk-free rate idea that's embedded in SOFR, I mean, that's very different to the original concept of LIBOR. And so from that perspective, right. you could see something like Ameribor that does include that credit risk component. You could see that trading uh, much more closely to um, LIBOR than SOFR, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And of course, even if you look at uh, on our terminal right now, you see there's a pretty big, you know, noticeable spread between Maribor and Sofer as it is right now. So uh, it'll be interesting. Again, it sort of goes back to this idea of all of these things, whether we're talking about a reference rate, whether we're talking about a currency as sort of de facto social networks, and or at least having big network effects. So. Uh, obviously, LIBOR had the ultimate network effect, but then it sort of faded. But we'll see. It'll be interesting to see if Ameribor can get enough traction so that people feel uh, value in continuing to use it, which is a good reason to have uh, Richard back uh, in, I don't know, six months or a year or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. 
And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. You should follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today, as well as all of the Bloomberg podcasts that can be found under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.